Hello, dear friends. Welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair, Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today, we are going to talk about baptism for the dead. Hmm. As you know, we're going through the Come Follow Me readings, kind of picking up some of the questions our evangelical friends might ask as we go along that are based on the te texts. Not trying to start debates, not trying to help you win a fight, um, just trying to help you understand we're here. We're evangelical friends and family members are coming from. We are we are two groups that talk past each other an awful lot. So trying to help um, get you to understand them a little bit better and maybe even be able to offer them some of the goodness of our faith. Like we've been doing before we get started, I want to remind you about the FAIR conference, August 2 through 4 in Provo. You can buy a ticket online or you can stream for free. Um, you do have to register if you want to stream. FairLatterdaySaints.org. Sign up for streaming. I'm speaking on Friday. I do, I do not understand how I got this lucky. But before me is Keith Erickson. He's the director of historical research for the church. Like he's a big deal. Right after me is Brant Gardner, who has written more books on church history than most people will read in a lifetime. So somehow I'm sandwiched in between the two of them. So I feel feeling pretty good about that. Um, incredibly lucky, actually. So today we're going to talk um, some more about baptism. We have, we've touched on baptism a little bit before in some of the older episodes in terms of like authority to baptize and some of why baptism is needed. We'll, we'll get into it again. Today, we're going to look at um, the practice of baptism for the dead. And of course, we have um, just one of the most famous verses in Matthew 28, 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. If you've heard more verses in the Bible than just John 3.16, that's probably one of the ones you've heard, so it's a great place to jump off from. Um, before we start, I, I will tell you my understanding of the practice of baptism for the dead long before I joined the church, long before I knew even very much about the church. You have probably heard people say this before, but you can feel free to snicker anyway. Um, the first time I heard of this practice was, I was a kid. Um, and I don't know if this was specifically told to me by someone who was I don't know, trying to give me wrong facts or if I just sort of interpreted this on my own. But my understanding at the time was the baptism for the dead meant that actual like dead bodies were being dunked under the water. And I really, as a kid, I just really tried to work out how that might be happening, um, especially for people who had been long dead because it didn't seem like anybody was digging up dead bodies as far as I could tell. Um, the only thing I could liken it to was I had heard of the Catholic practice of relics. Now in, in like casual vocabulary, we use the word relic to mean like an old object from another era. But technically the religious definition of a relic is that it's a bone or, or a tiny bone fragment, usually, um, of somebody who was a saint. You can go to cathedrals all over Europe and see 
relics on display. These are bones. They're usually like in a little shadow box and, and there's just a very tiny, you know, bone fragment inside. And they'll tell you, this is the bone of St. Paul or like whoever. And maybe they are and maybe they aren't. I don't know. Um, but that's what relic, a relic is. So I had figured that maybe somehow baptism for the dead was like they were baptizing relics, like bones. I don't know. It was the best I could come up with. As crazy as this explanation sounds to Latter-day Saint ears, you have to understand I was a very religiously curious child, a very religiously curious teenager. Um, as soon as I was an adult, I was reading every theology book I could get access to. So it's not like I wasn't interested in figuring out kind of the religious world. And it's not like I didn't have tools for which to understand some of these things. And if me, a, a weird religious kid who grew up to be a weird religious adult, if I couldn't quite work it out, you have to be sure lots of other people have some pretty odd understandings of this practice too. Maybe their, their explanation is odd in, in different ways than like my childhood one was. I went to the very concrete way a child thinks. Um, but you don't meet very many like non-Latter-day Saints who can clearly articulate what is happening in baptism for the dead. All of that to say, we really do have to give our evangelical friends a break <clears throat> on this one when they don't understand it very well. It's unique to, to us. They, they have no idea what we're talking about. So they're not, for the most part, going to understand it very well. That's okay. Um, so we're going to look at really sort of the two main evangelical and other broadly Protestant, but primarily evangelical, the ways that they have kind of misunderstood what is happening in baptism for the dead as a way of helping you understand where they're coming from, see a better path for this conversation. So the first concern for them that comes up is universalism. One of the ways they misunderstand what we're doing is that they think we're saying God has no criteria for salvation. Because if everyone, even dead people who had never trusted Christ, or even dead people who maybe specifically had rejected Christ, if everyone can be saved, that's universalism. It, and, and they would probably go to something like John 3, 5, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. M meaning there are some requirements to enter into the presence of God, right? And so they get really confused about what we're doing if we're saying, gosh, there's no requirements at all. Anybody can, alive or dead, it doesn't matter. The problem that evangelicals are rightly pointing out here is that traditionally God is either holy and has some requirements to be in his presence or he's merciful and allows everyone to be saved without requirements. And it has been really, really hard to find a middle ground or a way to incorporate both holiness and mercy 
most of the theological conversation for 2000 years has had those two at polar opposites. So this was a real puzzle that needed to be solved. Either God is a monster who damns people to hell, even if they never even had an actual chance to, to learn about Jesus Christ, or he has a path for everyone to meet the requirements to be in his presence. Before Joseph Smith put all of this together, nobody was talking that way. No one had figured out a way for God to be both holy and mercifully fair to people who hadn't heard about him. So here's some of the timeline of how this works out, how God reveals this to Joseph a tiny bit at a time. Latter-day Saints, you know a lot of these things. Um, I'm telling you these for a reason. We'll get there. So 1836, Joseph has this vision where he sees his brother Alvin in the celestial kingdom, despite never having been baptized. Um, And in 1840, four years later, he preaches for the first time about baptism for the dead being revealed to him. But we have to go all the way back to 1831 to see the elements of why this plays out in a way that lets mercy and and justice come together. So in 1832, Joseph gets a vision. We we now refer to it as Doctrine and Covenant 76. You can go in there and read it. Um, Joseph receives this revelation where he was taught that there are different parts of heaven, different levels of heaven appropriate to the faithfulness of different groups of people. So it wasn't a binary system of of heaven and hell and nothing in between like the Protestants had. It wasn't a system of heaven, hell, and purgatory, which is like a sub-level of hell. Catholics kind of have a a stratified hell system, but but just one idea of heaven. So it's not either one of those. But Joseph starts to understand that the requirements for these different parts of heaven, these different levels of heaven are different. I'll quote um, the very best article on this topic in terms of the history of how this came about. This is Ryan Tober's um, Saviors on Mount Zion. It's in the the 2013 Journal of Mormon History. He says, seemingly mindful of how messy life on earth could be, The revelation confirmed sentiments previously held by Joseph Smith, that God would expect no more than humankind could give. He had written to his uncle in 1833 that men will be held accountable for the things which they have and not for the things they have not. And this revelation seemed to bear out this doctrine. Here was a God who looked at the heart and acknowledged extenuating circumstances, A full celestial salvation was available to everyone with a good heart and righteous desires. God would hold nothing back from those who died unenlightened. In in other words, everyone would be given the chance to understand Jesus' sacrifice, to put their wills and their lives over to God, to follow the commands, even if they were already dead. So the question is, isn't this still universalism? Like, isn't that, isn't that what this is? 
There are no requirements for interest into heaven whatsoever. And all humans who have ever lived will go there. That's what evangelicals are worried about. Up until that point in history, the revelation that Joseph had received hinted at the idea that there was a way through the problem, um, the, the problem of people dying without knowing Jesus, but it had not been spelled out yet. And he was having the principles laid out for him, but hadn't been given a revelation that put it all together. That doesn't come until Joseph first teaches about this in 1840. Interestingly, though, even before then, we get some hints. So again, this is from the same article by Tolber. Um, in an editorial question and answer in the Elder's Journal, which was a church-owned newspaper at the time, he, Joseph, responded to a question about the fate of those who had died without embracing Mormonism. The, the questioner writes, if Mormonism be true, what of all those who died without baptism? The editorial offered a new and suggestive response. All those who have not had an opportunity of hearing the gospel and being administered unto by an inspired man in the flesh must have it hereafter before they can be finally judged. This, this is years before Joseph actually preaches about this for the first time. And it was a reply that opened up an entire other dimension. Nobody was talking about this kind of stuff. It opened up all kinds of possibilities. Joseph still needed more to be able to flesh all of all of that out, but we're getting we're getting these hints before. Um, it this statement it kind of appears to expand the scope of human action beyond the grave if not only gospel instruction, but the administration of saving ordinances were somehow available in the afterlife, the shape of God's design for saving the dead changed substantially. Latter-day Saint friends, I know that none of this sounds shocking to your ears. You're probably wondering why in the world is Jennifer taking the time to spell out what we already know? But this is the first time in history where the possibility that God can be both holy and fair has really been presented. It avoids the problem of universalism. It completely gets around that problem because it says, universalism says there's no requirements whatsoever. All are saved without ever doing or accepting anything. And a strict reformed teaching on the other side that says, well, if you don't have the opportunity to accept Christ before you die, you are out of luck because God has strict requirements. You can't get into his presence without believing and doing the right things. Sorry, you're out of luck. Those two, those two tensions, Joseph is solving that problem. The revelation given to him about baptism for the dead like, is the middle path in between those. Evangelicals, I hear you. You are still saying, wait, not so fast. <laughs> because the problem that they would raise here is about agents. Their worry, and you can understand it, is that if a member of the church is baptized on behalf of their deceased relative today, isn't that taking away the agency of the person? It, evangelicals would be extremely worried and nervous about this. This does not make sense to them. If you get baptized for them today, 
they're being allowed to bypass the requirements for agreeing to this whole process. They're getting universalism by proxy would be the, the evangelical worry here. But of course, we, we believe that even the dead still have agency, even the dead still have a choice. They can still choose to accept the work done for them and to what degree they will accept it. Evangelicals will often wonder here, like, well, who wouldn't accept it? If you stand someone on the cliff looking down into hell, who isn't going to accept that offer of salvation? But that is a very Protestant way of thinking about heaven. And here's where we go all the way back to Joseph's 1832 revelation about the various parts or levels of heaven and for the people who accept or agree to live by these various covenants. If you don't have that, none of this work for the deceased makes sense. If we don't have that, the, the, the various parts of heaven, evangelicals would be right. Anyone would choose heaven if hell were placed in front of them, and that was their only other choice. Instead, the Latter-day Saint conceptualization of this is that each person gets to choose exactly what covenants they want to live by. Now, yes, living by covenants comes with some blessings that are given to people who do not choose to live by those covenants. So it's not like there are, there's no consequence to that. But if you don't want to live by the covenants, God is not going to force you to. And there's still a place for you. And that place is not burning in hell forever. Um, people who choose to live without the restrictive parts of covenants are not being dangled over hell asking if they want to be saved, in essence, taking away their agency. They're being asked, how close would you like to live to God? Knowing that there are requirements for holiness placed upon those who want to live close to God. There are blessings too, but there absolutely are requirements. Nothing unholy can be in the presence of the Lord. Evangelicals would agree with us on that. Um, they don't believe in baptism for the dead because they believe the dead who did not place their trust in Christ, e even if they never heard of Christ, they believe those people go directly to hell with no chance of ever stopping the eternal torment. So right from the get-go, they have a very different version of what's happening than we do. One of the thoughts that kept coming to me when I was taking lessons with the missionaries to join the church was, I never even knew I had a choice about what to believe as far as eternity goes. I had only ever heard the binary heaven or hell, you have to choose now because it wouldn't be fair if you chose later. The idea that God punishes people for eternity, even when they never heard of him, it's, it's cruel. It's offensive. To, to what has been revealed about the character of God. If I get a choice about what to believe, and I do, <laughs> I want to believe the thing that most seems consistent with the character of God, that everyone gets a fair choice. As an evangelical, I would have said, like, this is a problem because of the holiness problem. There's a very clever little way around that. Um, 
So we talk for a minute on how our different views on when holiness matters come into play. Evangelicals agree with us that holiness matters. We put it in a different order and, and it makes a difference. Now, evangelicals do something really, really interesting here. They make a very similar argument that we make about temples. Let, let, let me explain. It's kind of like we're all Latter-day Saints and evangelicals. We are all working with the same ingredients, but we're putting them into the, into the mix in different proportions and at different times and making two very different cakes. So there's roughly four ingredients. Those ingredients are the problem of sin prevents us from being close to God. Two, God has a requirement of holiness. Three, the solution to that problem is Jesus Christ. And four, there needs to be some kind of physical act to represent the spiritual act, meaning the going out of the water and rising again as Christ rose that we do in baptism. We would all agree on the ingredients at play here. We would quibble a little bit on what is required and how often and is baptism really required. Like there'd be some quibbling, um, but those are the four ingredients that go in the cake. We put them in a different order and it matters. Evangelicals would say, first ingredient is the problem of sin. They skip number two, they go straight to number three and say the solution to the problem of sin is Jesus Christ. Then they go to four, Baptism is a symbol of the resurrection. You have to be baptized. And then they put in two. God requires holiness to get into heaven. And it is Jesus who provides that holiness ultimately. Latter-day Saints would agree with this in terms of, of baptism for living people. That's, that's how we teach and, and baptize people into this church, right? But we believe that salvation is available to all, even if you're dead. So proxy baptisms, we place things in a different order. The problem of sin is still first, right? That, that we have to overcome somehow there is sin in this world. Somehow we have to get back to God. Two, the requirement for holiness. Evangelicals put that in position four. We put it in two, the solution of Jesus and the need for a physical act. It's that second ingredient the requirement of holiness that everything hinges on. Evangelicals view the requirement of holiness as God requiring only holy things in his presence. And what they mean by that is that the only ones allowed into heaven will be the ones who are holy and, and they become holy because of Christ. We, we don't differ with them on that. But when we talk about proxy baptisms, there is this sense that we, people still alive, are partnering with God to accomplish work for people who can't accomplish it for themselves because they don't have a body um, with which to accomplish it. So standing in as proxy requires holiness on our part, us still alive people's part, because, because it is as if we were standing before God on behalf of that person. Of course, our holiness is Christ's holiness. No one achieves holiness on their own. 
some holiness we pull off through good works, although sometimes evangelicals get confused and think we do. But because we are going to get our own physical bodies involved, holiness is required. I understand why evangelicals get so upset that we want privacy in our temple worship. But the part they're missing is that this is a, a holiness unto the Lord issue. It's actually an issue we agree on. We just say that that standard of holiness applies now. We're, while we're trying to help the salvation of people who are already dead, we say that temples are a place where heaven touches earth. Right? This is straight off the church's website. I'll quote it to you. A place where heaven touches earth, a place where marvelous blessings are bestowed, and a place where we can feel closer to our heavenly father and Jesus Christ as we strive to become more like them. We talked about five episodes back on the tension between like, grace and works and why works matter so much to Latter-day Saints, why we strive to keep covenants, why we strive to have um, holy behaviors and practices. It's because we put this in position number two, that there is no helping the dead without holiness on our part because God does not allow things into his presence that are not holy. Evangelicals would agree. They just say it doesn't, doesn't matter as much until you are there dead standing before God and he is going to judge you heaven or hell. Your time for choosing is over. Um, so no one, not evangelicals and not Latter-day Saints, are saying that holiness doesn't matter. We would all say that it does. But they would say, in a sense, that it doesn't matter until they themselves are dead and will be judged. So naturally, works of, of holiness, striving for holiness, striving to live by the commandments, it doesn't take on the same meaning for them that it does for us. Um, we would say that if we want to help our dead loved ones go into the presence of the Lord, that our holiness is required now because of the extremely intimate way in which our own bodies are involved, our proxy for them. So there is no, there is no possibility of doing that without holiness ma mattering. I hope that was interesting for you. I hope that kind of sheds some light on some of the reasons why evangelicals get so upset about this and, and really kind of how we're talking past each other this, I think if someone would have explained this to me this way when I was an evangelical, I would have, I would have absolutely been, you have to tell me more. Um, and I don't know, maybe your evangelical friends and family will feel that way too. That is all I have for you today. I think we went way over time, but here we are. Um, next week, we're talking about what makes someone an apostle. Evangelicals and Latter-day Saints have radically different answers to that question. And that'll be fun to explore. I think you will be fascinated by it. And I will see you then.